I think tonight's talk is a little bit like last week's talk in that the talk comes from a personal experience and it comes, a specific personal experience, and comes more broadly and directly from the fact that I'm holding a lot of questions in my own life and so I'm noticing that as I prepare to come in on Thursday night I'm sharing views and perspectives and talking about potential or possibility and I'm not explicitly trying to identify how we will get to those specific potentials or possibilities but particularly in the case of tonight more so inviting all of us to ask how is it that we're going to do what's important to us how are we going to identify and how are we going to do what's important to us So I think I'll start. Uh, I'll start with the experience I had that suggested that maybe I was, uh, maybe there was something happening with me to me that would would be useful to comment on or to reflect on and to and to try to have some conversation around. And I was I was in Gloucester where I live and I was a couple nights a week I usually try to go to the to the gym and uh, I sit on the bike and I pedal the bike and I watch the news I just watch whatever's on TV I don't even really care what it is I just I've been um, usually on the computer all day interfacing with students and I just like I need to get out of the house I need to get away from the computer and I don't have a TV at home so it's it's actually really pretty balancing for me in terms of how I choose to spend my time. It's really good for me to, you know, watch the news or watch athletes running around, even if it's a sport that I don't know anything about. And I kind of check out a little bit, actually. It's sort of like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's good for me in a way. And um, this was just a couple of days ago and I I learned about the uh, bombing in the Istanbul airport and you know we all know that in many places in the world for a very long time but it seems to me particularly recently there's really been a lot of violence Uh, and I like to think that I'm very attuned to it I like to think that when I see it in the paper or on the news, I, I sort of lock in, I let it register, this is what's happening in the world. I feel it some, to some degree personally. I, I look within myself for an empathetic response um, and I let it touch me and open me in a certain way. And, and, and what happened this week was I had the opportunity to see how I'm actually shut down a lot of the time or I had the upper end. I had the opportunity to see how 
maybe I'm through exposure, right? There's a theory that through exposure we don't feel the effects of certain kinds of actions. And so I had a sense of, well, maybe I'm subject to that too, even though I care about cultivating empathy and I, I want to be in touch with these important issues and how to make a difference. <clears throat> and the way I was able to draw those conclusions and ask those questions about myself is the impact of what happened in Istanbul was profound on me. Um, it was, it, you know, maybe I could use the cliche, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I just couldn't take in any more tragedy. I, I couldn't, it was like my system couldn't hold any more misfortune. And uh, I'm not even sure in this moment I can identify all the different feelings, but I felt a kind of overwhelm. I felt a kind of helplessness. Uh, I felt angry. I felt really angry. And I, and I, and I felt uh, sorrow, sadness, I, really feeling for, you know, like I just imagined in, in a way that I, I, I didn't necessarily at this level around other recent tragedies, I just imagined like, what would it be like? What was it like for all those people in the airport? Um, you know, to see people running, even though we see that in the news a lot, uh, I saw the fear, I felt the fear. How much fear might there be if you were next to an explosion and, and, and just that, that, res that, that flight response? Um, and underneath all of this, you know, this long-standing concern that I, I was living with and quite pained with in my <coughs> late teens and early 20s, which was one of the primary factors that drove me to meditation but it's practice I, 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 I was I reconnected with that deep concern um, I'll just say for the world quite honestly and, and just wondering you know like how does this happen how do we get here What can I do? Can I do, any, can I do anything? Right? Can I do anything? And, you know, the, when I have these kinds of experiences, I feel about the personal interest and I feel a responsibility to make these kinds of experiences and these kinds of questions the subject of my work as a teacher. It feels like to not do that would be um, radically inappropriate and irresponsible. And yet, the truth is, I don't have a lot of answers. Right? And so part of my work is being honest about that. And encouraging conversations. Um, that might put us in touch with uh, questions that are worth reflecting on. So a couple of days before this, I was on a, um, 
I was on a call with a student. Uh, many of you know I work one-on-one uh, with people around the country. I, every two weeks, I talk to a total of about 40 students, and I talk about their meditation practice and just what's going on in their life and uh, to help make the connections between one's practice and how they're living and experiencing their life and to make sure that we're bringing our life into our meditation practice. And, uh, I was talking with somebody who was really, really having a hard time with the with um, the withdrawal, Britain's withdrawal, and they were, you know, distraught and concerned uh, about Europe, about America, about the whole world, about the effects. And uh, that incident didn't have the impact on me that some other incidents had. And we got into this very, on me personally, we got into this very interesting conversation around the role of politics, uh, the role of the European Union, what was happening in America in the current election. And we talked a little bit about spirituality and politics and how they fit together or don't fit together. And for this person I was talking to, they meshed. You know, they were completely integrated. And I've always said as a way of explaining my relationship to politics, I've I've often found myself explaining to people that my spirituality is not political and my politics aren't spiritual. And I, I'm still not sure exactly what I mean when I when I say that. Uh, but for me, I've made a choice to focus on not exclusively, but to give a lot of time and energy to my meditation practice as a way of creating personal change and addressing social issues. That's something I became interested in in my early 20s was the relationship between, to use a very specific Buddhist framework, the relationship between greed, hatred, and delusion within myself and within human beings and how that translates institutionally, socially, in our communities, uh, in political bodies, etc. So my personal focus has been on understanding how can I understand and know my heart and mind. And to the degree that I can begin to understand that, how can I find ways to translate that so that other people who are interested, um, they can have also the tools to do that kind of work. Now, when I hung up the phone with this person, I felt very self-conscious around maybe not being able to fully support them um, and have since written them an email that said, hey, I just want you to know that I left our conversation feeling a little self-conscious uh, and wondering if you know the way that conversation went was, I, just, I don't know if it was really supportive for you. I, I realize that we have some different views and we, we, we put a lot of energy, you know, our, the way we give our energy and resources to life is sometimes it overlaps and sometimes it's differently and I want you to know that 
I think you have a huge amount of skill and knowledge that I don't have. This is a person who really understands the nature of politics and the effect of decision making on different levels. And this is a person who's very interested in policy. And uh, it just struck me, it struck me in a particular way how important all of that is. Even though I haven't personally focused the bulk of my time and energy on engaging with the world on that level. But it just really hit me, wow. A, this is really important. And B, if it's really important to him, if his way of authentically facing the challenges of our generation occur in that domain, it's really important. And this comes back to a core value that those of you who practice with me know is primary to my philosophy and my teaching and how I aim to live, whether I'm doing good or not, is always ebbing and flowing, but it is the value that self-awareness includes not only a deeper understanding of greed, hatred, and delusion, but who it is that we are in terms of our values. How is it that we want to live? How is it that we want to earn our income? How is it that we want to serve if we identify with that word? Right? So there's a sense of um, what is most meaningful, what is authentic, what is purposeful. And I talk about that a lot, right? <clears throat> so the, the Buddha gave us this very, very simple model called often, more often than not, the Four Noble Truths, and I like the rendering of the four tasks, because the Four Noble Truths can sound a little religious and dogmatic. There's four things, they're true, and when you understand them and believe them, you are right, like I'm right. <laughs> right? And when we all agree, then you get the, you get the secret code and you can come on Friday night. <laughs> See, so far you're only invited on Thursday night. Because you haven't agreed with me yet. The four tasks frame the Four Noble Truths in a way that I like because it says these are, these are, th these are experiences to be... Uh, these are experiences to be had and understood. Number one, that life includes suffering. Let's not turn away from that. That number two, there's a cause. We can understand the cause of suffering. Let's explore and experience that together. Number three, that there is an alleviation, an, a, a, a lessening, a reduction, an elimination of suffering. Let's experience that. Let's learn tools and strategies to experience the reduction of suffering. And four, that there's a path, there's a way. There's a way to do this. There's a way to experience directly suffering in the world. Uh, there's a way to understand the cause and there's a way and there's a way to alleviate it. So <clears throat> given the the reality of the world that we're all sharing right now uh, I sometimes ask, well how does this map against social issues? How does this map against uh, 
gender issues? How does this map against uh, power dynamics and institutionalized oppression? Um, you know, is the Buddha talking about just being happier, or is the Buddha talking about actually changing the way everything works? Right? You know, on another phone call this week, somebody explained that in Los Angeles at the Gay Pride celebration, that a car was found with a person. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, uh, with a lot of ammunition, a lot of, uh, I don't know if it was in the car, a lot of ammunition. And we know that the same thing happened in Brooklyn, right? We all know it happened in Orlando, right? So I'm getting, this week, I'm getting all of these images and memories um, of I'm going to say, and this feels a little bit like a, like a risk, but I'm going to say getting all these <coughs> reminders and evidence of ignorance, of greed, of hatred, of delusion. And I'm choosing in this context to use you know, a particular Buddhist framework. But you know, we talk about the, the, the second noble truth as tanha in Pali, or craving. And underneath this craving is... Uh, a certain kind of ignorance, fundamentally. So I think it's okay, I think it's appropriate to say that um, we are surrounded by hearts and minds that uh, don't know how to live well together, that don't know how to live skillfully. Uh, And it seems that this uh, at least to me, that, that we're in a sort of, we're, we're in a, maybe an acute stage of that being true. <clears throat> so this week, of course, uh, I was confronted with the first noble truth, right, dukkha. I could feel in, in myself the pain and the sorrow, the confusion, the anger. That's dukkha. And we don't need to look very far if we turn the news on or open the newspaper to see outside of ourselves dukkha, pain, right, clearly. And there's an interesting question uh, that comes up often in practice circles, uh, and specifically in the Buddhist community, around, well, what do we do? You know, if we have an interest in suffering, what do we actually do? And one of the sort of classic inquiries uh, tries to weigh how much time to spend meditating and cultivating our own heart and mind in waking up, becoming maybe enlightened. Right? And how much time do we spend um, engaged in the world? Right? The, ex- the example of my friend uh, in uh, California who, for whom it's very important to be very active politically. Right? So, again, remember this, this 
as much as it would be nice if it was, this, this talk or exploration is, is not so much about answers, and I'm okay with that, but uh, just pointing out that this is a worthwhile inquiry for all of us. How much of your practice, how much of your response to your life and to the lives of people around you and to the world how much of that response needs to take place right here on the cushion uh, in this room on Thursday night at meditation retreat? And how much of your own relationship to your own suffering and the suffering of the world takes place in some other way that's engaged, that's out in the world, that has some interpersonal element, that has some more active or engaged element. So the, the change by way of... Uh, well, let, let, me, let me back up. <clears throat> there, there's, there's another, there's sort of a correlate frame that we can use when we think about and talk about and explore practice. With regard to sitting on the cushion, right, as an archetypal expression and action of practice, that has a lot to do with being with experience. Does that make sense to you? That there's sort of, particularly in the way I taught tonight, we don't have to change anything. We don't have to try to make anything happen. We don't have to push anything away. But we can notice. We can notice what is happening, right? We can observe, right? So that's, that's one way, not the only way, it's one way of talking about the, uh, the internal, tr- there is transformation internally that happens through that, to lear- through learning how to do that, to, to, be, to, be, to develop that skill. On the other side, we change so, 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 sorry, coming back to the first example, we change by learning to be with. We, we fundamentally change our experience overall by learning to be with. And me and other teachers who you work with will often say things like, we're not changing the external conditions. We're not changing the external conditions. We're learning to change our relationship to external conditions so that we suffer less. Core tenet of of refining your Buddhist practice, your insight practice. And then on the other side of the argument, we actually need to address, we actually need to address external conditions, right? And this is this is the territory of engaged Buddhism. This is the territory of more action. This is the territory of relational mindfulness or relational kindness. I can sit and do metta practice. May you be well. May you be peaceful. I can do that for people in the Istanbul airport. Right? And I can hold the question, what is it like to be a kind human being when I leave that door and go out into the world? What, is, what does that look like for me? 
how do I learn how to do that? If that's what I want to do, how do I learn how to do that? So on, on some level, this is about changing conditions. You know, some people will express kindness by going to volunteer and serve, serve somewhere, right? Donate money, donate time, uh, help someone who's sick, etc. Right? This is kindness. It's also generous. And it's wise because you've identified a need and assumedly you've identified a way of intersecting that need and now you're doing it. So there's a wisdom involved. There's wisdom and compassion. So the the ultimate question that I'm framing and that came out of my, that is still coming out of my inquiry this week, I'm just sharing, I'm really sharing with you a process that I'm in the middle of. One of the questions that I'm sitting with, I'm currently framing in this way, how do we take our practice, how do we take our practice, and how do we take the Buddha's teachings and utilize them? How do we take the Buddha's teachings and utilize them? How do we apply them to our lives? How do we apply them to our lives in ways that match A, the needs of our world, A, the needs of our world, and B, our own personal needs? So I'm... I'm suggesting that they're, they're both important, right? So how do we take our meditation practice, the formal practice, we just did a half an hour together, how do we take an experience like that? And how do we take the Buddha's teachings and utilize them? How do we really put them into action? How do we apply them to our lives in ways that match, A, the needs of our world, and B, our own personal needs. And I, I was trying to remember uh, something that I think a man named Stephen Foster said, and I couldn't remember it, so I'll just have to paraphrase. Uh, Stephen Foster was a poet and a, a Vision Quest teacher, uh, founder of the School of Lost Borders in California. And, uh, wrote a couple of books uh, around rites of passage and earth-based ceremony and ritual. And he talked about, he talked about the idea of soul or, or, or self and a, a really embodied, realized life being what is found at the intersection of one's uh, deepest personal needs and the hunger or need of the world that they were born into. Like if, if we can identify that intersection, that that would be the ripest, richest, most fruitful place to live from. Um. <clears throat> and that's a sentiment that I totally agree with, and, and you, you know that, I, that I'm often trying to advocate for that. So why is this not a, a talk about, you know, you go do this, and you go do that, and you go do... It's not because um, I haven't got 
I haven't drawn those conclusions yet. It's, it is because I sincerely think that the answer to this kind of grand and maybe complex and maybe sometimes overwhelming inquiry and question, I really do think the answer is personal. I, uh, I, it's, it's not a cop-out. It's not to avoid forwarding an answer. It's just to say, I'm interested in the questions. It's just to say, I think that the questions are really important. And my hope is that what I offer you will be some indication of the value of your own self-inquiry around all of this, right? And so you can plug yourself heavily into the personal practice part. You can plug yourself heavily into the engagement part. I'm not so sure it matters. This question of like, on that scale, where do you want to be today? And it changes, and it changes. Where do you want to be? So it's personal. And, you know, at the beginning I, I brought up the... the the Buddha's four noble truths as, as a way of giving some traditional context or form to this inquiry that I'm, that I'm in. And I thought, well, how does the Eightfold Path apply to it? Like, can we, act, can we take the Buddha's Eightfold Path and map it to these larger global questions and um, and I think it's fair to say that I think it's fair to say that we can do that uh, maybe not in a traditional classical Buddhist way that would have full agreement from all the monastics or something like that but yeah I think we can do it the the Buddha and, this, and, I'll, and I'll just I'll close here. The the Buddhist eightfold path has a threefold system of engagement, and that threefold system of engagement is the develop the development of meditation, the development of wisdom, and the development of sila or ethics. That comprises that's the threefold sasana that the Buddha gave us so what is this ethical um, what is this ethical dimension integrity honesty and kindness right when we look around the world uh, we don't see everybody acting with integrity do we Uh, I didn't mention it but uh, you know I mentioned mostly stuff that's in the news but I'm also dealing with, um, I don't like the word dealing with, relating to, navigating, having conversations uh, with colleagues around uh, situations where we're seeing a lack of integrity or ethics on the part of people in leadership and there's a, there are power structures in play and people are, people are being hurt and we now know that people are being taken advantage of and hurt. So however you define it, to enter into the the Buddhist Eightfold Path 
at the level of sila or ethics, sila is the Pali word for ethics or conduct, we become interested in integrity. And we define, and, and this is the, the non-traditional translation, we define that ourselves. And I, I like to put honesty in this category. Can we live honestly? And, and, and can we live with kindness? I think that it's appropriate to map kindness in, in conduct or ethics. Okay. Wisdom is the second element or one of the three elements of the, of the Eightfold Path. What is wisdom? Wisdom is self-awareness. Now, the, again... This is not a traditional trans- classical translation, right? You know, we can say that wisdom leads to awakening and enlightenment, and then we have to define all of that. And you know what happens when we start having those conversations. Wisdom is self-awareness. Wisdom is self-awareness. What is self-awareness? It's knowing what we want to do and how to do it. It's knowing what we want to do and how to do it. That's what self-awareness is. What do we want to do and how to do it? That's what, we're, that's what we're doing on this path, for sure. And, and in a certain way, I want to say that is a traditional rendering. Wisdom is self-awareness, and it's knowing what we want to do and how to do it. Remember, wisdom is also understanding suffering, its cause, and its alleviation. So the invitation is to view that on both the personal and the social or cultural level. And the last or third or one of the three components of the Buddhist Eightfold Path is is meditation, of course. Um, And there's, again, and so at this point this is just a (coughs) review, there's the formal meditation, which we did together tonight. And there's the embodied or engaged Meditation. Meditation and action. So I think I'll end there. Uh, We have a little bit of time for questions, uh, comments, anything you might want to add to the to the conversation quite interested in just how you're feeling and maybe even how you're relating to some of what's happening in the in the world that we're all uh, in the world that we have all inherited uh, together